where is your happy place? You know, that's, that's a phrase that's used quite a bit. Find your happy place. And, you know, I've heard it in movies before of like people that are angry and they're like, you just gotta find your happy place. So, where is your happy place? I can tell you some of my happy places. I can remember in high school, I played high school football, and I can remember uh, playing a, a tough game. My high school football team was like the, the epitome of average. We lost five games and won five games. That's 500. That is like, that is the definition of average when it comes to football. But uh, there was one game in particular that we really worked hard to win. And I remember walking to the bus afterwards, and one of my teammates looked at the other one and said, man, isn't this just the best feeling in the world? And I have to admit, it felt really good. There was this like euphoric feeling almost of, of winning this football game, right? That was a happy moment in my life. Another time I remember uh, surfing off the east coast of Costa Rica and the sun was setting behind mountains and I was there with my best friends and we're, we're out in the ocean on our surfboards and we're watching the sunset and I thought, man, life just doesn't get much better than this. And I didn't even realize at that moment that it did get better. Because another one of my happiest memories is proposing. And then uh, I'll never forget the day that my first son was born. And just the amount of happiness that, that was overflowing in my life. What about you? I love mountain biking. Shredding the trail and coming down and just Man, it feels so good, doesn't it? Maybe you're a crafter, and you're like, my happy place is crafting. I've known some older ladies that their happy place was their quilting area. Happy place. But if you'll notice something about all of these happy places, is there exactly that? Happy places, or, or should I say circumstances? These feelings are based on circumstances. They're things that we surround ourselves with to make us feel good. Or there are circumstances that happen to us. Like, I mean, I didn't have a whole lot of control when it came to the birth of my firstborn. Jen had a lot more control over that than I did. But, you know, these are circumstances. Unfortunately, I think a lot of Americans, they don't even really strive for happy places anymore, a lot of times we strive, I think, for titillation. Jen hates it when I use the word titillation, and so I'm going to use it as much as I can right now. Just get it all in there, right? But what is titillation? Titillation is just a real, uh, happiness can be a fleeting moment of feeling great. Titillation is like just really quick, right? So there are a lot of things that we strive just to get titillated. We love as Americans because we have so much titillation at our fingertips, we just love to pursue titillation. So what is it that you pursue that is titillating? For a lot of our, for a lot of our younger people who are more tech savvy, we get titillation through scrolling. With every new post or story or video, and we scroll through and we become like almost addicted because that feeling that chemical feeling that is released when you see something you enjoy, it goes away almost automatically. And so what do you do? You just scroll on to the next. 
Netflix, I mean, come on. You know you're getting titillated when Netflix is like, you need to go to bed already. Quit watching. And yet, what do you do? You just say, no, I'm still watching. Keep, keep titillating me. So we get titillated through TV. We get titillated through screens. But there are other places that we feel that we get titillated from. Complaining, I think, is titillation. You want to make a friend really quick? Complain with them about something. You're in a line, and you're in a line full of strangers? Just complain about the line. And all of a sudden, they're all your friends. Because you got titillated together about this complaint. And then you're going to hate each other when, you know, the line gets incredibly long and you don't like each other. So there's, there's happiness, which is circumstantial, right? And then there's titillation, which is also circumstantial, but it's even more fleeting. And I think Americans get really caught up. We really love titillation. Happiness, oftentimes, it's circumstantial, but it takes some kind of work to make a quilt. to paddle out on your surfboard. Even just friendship in and of itself and relationships, that takes work. Titillation doesn't take much work, and so we oftentimes settle for titillation. What about joy? What is joy? Is joy circumstantial? Can you have joy in your life? I think joy goes beyond circumstances. Happiness is based on what's happening around us. Happiness, it's a feeling that we get when things happen that we enjoy, but joy goes beyond that. In fact, we see Peter says, uh, sorry, I should say James says, count it all joy when you go through trials. He doesn't say have happiness in trials. He says count it all joy. Peter also admonishes us to have joy during trials. And Paul says, I have learned to be content in all situations. He was in prison as he wrote that, by the way. So what is joy? It's something way deeper than happiness. I've heard it defined as quiet delight. Meaning that there's something deep down inside where you can find peace, satisfaction, contentment in the midst of every circumstance life throws at you. I think the example I go back to over and over again in my own life is when my first wife died. I did not have feelings of titillation. I did not have feelings of happiness. I would have been considered, I think, a wicked person to have those feelings. I was in the midst of deep grief. I was sobbing over the loss of someone I loved and dedicated my life to. And yet, in the midst of all of that, I felt joy. And it seems almost mind-blowing. In fact, I think if you don't know Christ, you can't figure out how in the midst of grief, anyone could feel joy. Your life just got just absolutely rocked, just shattered to the core. How on earth could you feel joy? Well, that's what we're going to study today as we look at 
uh, Psalm 32. So we're going through this Advent series. We, we were studying uh, Hopeful, which was a study through Revelation. We're taking a little bit of a break as we walk through Advent. Advent is just a time to prepare our hearts for the, for the, to celebrate, I should say, to celebrate the birth of our Messiah, our Savior. And so as we've been walking through this, Bob started us off with uh, faith, and then we looked towards, sorry, hope, and then we looked towards faith last week. This week we're going to be studying joy. So we're, we're going to study uh, Psalm 32. To, to know the background of Psalm 32, this is a psalm that most theologians believe David wrote after he is confronted about his sin with Bathsheba. So uh, just to really give a huge overview, you know, you've got in Genesis, God calls out Abraham. He's going to start a, a nation with him. That's what we studied last week. He, he starts to grow this people group. They get, uh, they, they get enslaved by Egypt. They grow to be about two million in Egypt. And then they get the Exodus, right? So we get the Exodus. They go into the promised land. And Joshua helps them conquer the promised land. And then we get the book of Judges, which is all about their failure. If you've ever read the book of Judges uh, as like, this is the example we should be living out, you're reading it wrong. I know a lot of people do that. I did that for the majority of my life. Judges is all about Israel's failure, right? So, so you've got Israel failing, and they learn that they need to have some type of godly leadership. That's the lesson that Judges is going to bring them. They need some type of godly leadership. And so what do they get? They get Saul. And they learn that it really needs to be godly. It's not just any leader will do. So Saul, he's big, he's tall, he's handsome. Just because you're big and tall and handsome doesn't mean you're a great leader. So instead, so he rebels. God says, okay, I'm, you're no longer going to be the king. I'm going to anoint David. David has to wait out until Saul dies, and then David becomes king. And he's this godly king until one spring. Now, springtime was the time that kings typically went out to war. And so David, as the good godly leader of Israel, should have been out leading his people in war, but instead, he takes the season off. He decides to stay home. And while he's home, he sees a girl. And he decides that he's going to sleep with this girl. So he calls her to the, key, uh, to the palace. He seduces her and then sends her home. Only to find out that she's pregnant. But what does he do? He calls her husband back from the front lines. This amazing man who was out there fighting on behalf of the king. And he thinks, you know, if I can just get him drunk, he'll go sleep with his wife, and then he'll think that he's the one that got her pregnant. That's his scheme. But this amazing man that was out there doing the things that King David should have been doing, says, no, I can't do that. Well, my brothers are out on the front lines. I'm not going to enjoy the comforts of home. King David is at a loss. He doesn't know what to do. So he devises a plan to have him killed. So we've got King David, the godly man, who is now 
an adulterer and a murderer. Almost nine months later, oh, sorry, I should back up a little bit. Right after he marries Bathsheba. And now he thinks, no one will know. They'll all just think that this was legit. I've got everybody fooled, right? Because oftentimes when we're slaves to sin and we're steeped in sin, we think we've got everyone fooled. And really we don't have anyone fooled. I don't think anyone in that kingdom was fooled. They knew exactly what was going on. But he's the king. Do you dare confront the king? Well, almost nine months later, there is a confrontation. Nathaniel, who was a prophet, meaning the mouthpiece of God, comes and he confronts David. And David repents. But as a consequence, his son is going to die. Now, we could, get a, we could get in and devise some theories on why his son was going to die. I think that's beyond us right here and right now. What I want to focus in on is Psalm 32, which is what Saul, which is what David writes after being confronted about his sin. A masculine of David, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. All right, so we've got David. He's been confronted almost nine months later. Now remember that. I think it's important for us to hold on to that, that for nine months, David had thought he had the whole kingdom fooled. David thought he was getting away with this. He was living in this shame and this guilt and trying to cover up his own sin. That's what's going on with David here. And he's confronted, and this is what he writes in response. So he writes, uh, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed means favored. Well, blessed really depends on the context, right? So it's one of those words that oftentimes it's just dependent on the context. Uh, oftentimes it means favored or like invoking favor upon. We just uh, saying bless the Lord mean favor God. Make God the favor in your life. Highly favor God. So that's one way to think of blessed. It can also mean the joy that is produced by praising God or the joy that is produced by trusting in God. 
So you've got this idea here that to be blessed by God means to be favored by God. And this being favored by God produces a joy in your life when you trust the favor that God lavishes upon you. Right? So blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression is simply violating God's law. So someone who has violated God's law but is forgiven. To forgive means to not hold that violation against someone. When you forgive someone, you're no longer holding, if they've violated you, you're no longer holding that violation against them. Now, I think it's important as we talk about forgiveness that we understand when we forgive someone, we don't hold that violation against them, but that doesn't mean that we have to make that relationship perfect again. If you grew up with an abuser, you can forgive the abuser, meaning you don't hold that against them anymore, but that doesn't mean that you have to have a relationship with them. That doesn't mean that all of a sudden you welcome them back into your life ready to be abused by them again. It just simply means I'm not holding that anger against you anymore. You can still have very strong boundaries and forgive someone. I think that's very important for us to know. But here it is God that is forgiving that transgression. So someone that has violated God's moral law, God is not holding that against this person who was blessed. And not only is their transgression forgiven, but their sin is covered. Sin means to miss the mark. Later on in Greek, it will be translated as hamartia, and it was something that the, the Romans would actually say during archery tournaments. So during an archery tournament, if the archer missed the target, they'd yell, hamartia, you missed. You missed the mark. So, ble so blessed is the one who, though they miss the mark, they don't hit it properly. Their sin is covered. Covered is an accounting term, meaning that someone's ledger has come up short and someone else is going to cover that expense for them. So I think of it as like my kids in taxes, sales tax in particular. How many of your kids don't understand sales tax? I don't know how many times I have to explain it to them, but you know, they save up their money, they've been saving for a while, they have this like little bug that they want to buy and they're so excited and so we go to the store and they see it's ten dollars sweet dad i've been saving up for so long i have ten dollars yeah but you have sales tax no it's ten dollars all right let's go so we get to the checkout they buy it and all of a sudden it's like 10 30. well where did that come from well that's the sales tax all right well i don't have 30 cents dad you come up short it's okay i'll have well, my kids will pay their taxes when the time comes. They don't need to pay their taxes. I'll pay their taxes for them. But that's what it is. It's, it's, it's covering someone else. When they come up short, it's covering for them. So he's saying, bless, this person has transgressed against God, has shaken their fist, violated God's moral law, and now they've come up short as well. So they've missed the mark. God has a standard, and they have missed that standard. They've fallen short and God has covered it for them. God has said, you've fallen short of my standard, but I'm going to cover that for you anyways. That's what's going on. That's that, the guy that's blessed. And then verse 2 kind of just repeats what's going on here. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Iniquity is guilt. So the person that has had guilt, 
that recognizes that they've messed up and, and is covering or holding on to that guilt, God's not counting it against them. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, this deceit means to try to cover, and it's actually a reference back to covering your own expense or covering up your tracks, right? And what was David doing for nine months? Well, not just for nine months, but from the moment he decided he was going to violate God's moral law by taking another man's wife, he decided he was going to cover his tracks. He was going to make it so no one understood the amount of sin and wickedness in his own heart. That's what he was doing. He was deceitful. He was covering up his sin. He was covering up missing the mark. He was covering up his transgressions, his sin, his guilt. But the person that does that is not blessed. It is the one where there is no deceit. Basically what he's saying is the person that comes clean. You may not have taken another man's wife and killed him. You may not be a murderer. But at some point in your life, you have violated God's moral law. At some point in your life, you have missed the mark. If we could watch your life every time you messed up, or, or didn't fully hit that mark, we could all yell, Hamartia! We have all done that. And there are some of us that are still going around trying to cover it up. Still going around trying to make everyone think that we are righteous because of our own efforts. That we are more righteous than you because I do these things that cover up my sin. And what he's saying here is not, it's important for us to get this, but the person who is blessed is not the one who has never violated God's moral law. It's not the one who always hits the mark. It's not the one that has never messed up. The one who is blessed is the one who has a failure and recognizes the failure and confesses the failure. And the point is, every single one of us has messed up. Every single one of us at some point in our life have rebelled against God, said, forget you, God, I want to do things my way. And you'll never be blessed if you're constantly trying to cover up that moral failure. The first step is to confess, God, I've missed the mark. I've rebelled against you. I have violated your moral teaching. I have violated your moral law. That is the one who is blessed. The one who comes clean. So that's what David's getting at. That's going to be the point. And then he goes on four. Four is kind of contrasting what he feels now. So, so now at this moment he has come clean, but there were nine months where he hadn't come clean. Nine months where he was living the opposite of this, where he was trying to cover up his moral violation against God's law, where he was trying to cover up his sin. And then he's going to describe it for us. For when I kept 
silent, meaning he wasn't going to confess, he wasn't going to bring it into the light, he was going to try to continue in that deceit to cover up his violations. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. So his sin had an effect on his body. Sin always has an effect on our body. And the stress of covering up that sin, the stress of the guilt and the shame will have an impact on us. I saw this so well growing up. I had uh, my mother's parents where they loved God. They grew up uh, just loving God. And they grew into their 90s. They always just, even into their 90s, they served in Awana. They kept bees, they gardened. And then my dad's parents, man, they just lived a life dedicated to themselves. For looking for instant gratification, they, they searched for titillation. That's all they cared about. They didn't want to put in the hard work for happiness or trust in God for joy. They simply wanted to live a life of titillation. And though they were younger than my mother's parents, they looked far older. And they died much younger. Sin and covering up our sin and living with the shame and the guilt of our sin has an impact on our bodies. So his bones wasted away, and he says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. So he's feeling these consequences and he's holding the weight of his sin. He's holding this weight and it's dragging him down. And he continues, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And what this is getting at is that it's like uh, during a drought and you start to see all the moisture go away, that vitality, the vitality of David was leaving his body. He was being uh sucked up of all his strength. It's very similar to uh, around here during June, you know? We get some moisture during the winter, May comes, and we might have one, like, late snowstorm, and then nothing, right? And by the end of June, the fire danger's high. If we don't get monsoons enough, or soon enough, the, the forests start to close, and you start to see it taking its effect on the trees, you think of that as what's happening to David there. That drought is sucking all of the life out of him. His inability to confess to God that he has sinned against him. His desire to cover up his shame and live a lie. We see this all the time with people who refuse to admit but they've sinned against God, who are living as slaves to sin, and their strength and their joy just being sucked dry. Verse 5 is the turning point. So as he covers up his sin, as he covers up his transgressions, he loses strength. It has an impact on his body. And then we see the turning point. I acknowledge my sin to you. This term acknowledged means he let it be known. He let it be known. 
He quit fighting against God, and he let it be known to God. I did not cover my iniquity. So he quit trying to hide what God already knew, right? I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. To confess means to agree or to testify to something. Now, you might say, whoa, 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 wait a second there. He didn't confess until someone already called him out. You're right. It's very true. Sometimes we have this idea that someone's not truly repentant unless they come clean on their own. And I don't necessarily think that's always the case. Sometimes we think someone who confesses without any confrontation is like somehow more righteous. Some people need that confrontation. Some people can't stand the guilt. Some people can't stand the shame. Some people actually take the advice that David's going to give later on and just come clean and confess right away. Some people never confess until they're confronted. But just because they're confronted and then they confess doesn't mean their confession is less. In fact, this word confess simply means to agree to or to testify that something is true. And so Nathan comes and Nathan confronts him and what does David do? He could have denied it still. He could have had Nathan killed. I mean, he could have continued to cover up this sin as if it had never happened. That's what he could have continued to do. And we see people that are like that, where we confront them with sin, and they're like, uh -uh. I can remember my son when he was, oh, I think he was two, he ate some chocolate, right? And I mean, he's just got chocolate all over his face. And we're like, hey, did you eat something? He's just looking around like, how on earth can I get out of this? I'm in trouble. There's got to be some way. No. I mean, the chocolate's on your lips, man. No chocolate on my lips. It's there. I see it. And sometimes that happens. You confront someone and you know that sin. And they just look at you and they're like, mm -mm, that's not me. Sometimes people confront us, and we're so afraid. They're going to think of us as less. We're afraid that somehow we'll lose a position. We're afraid that God can't work it out when we confess that we do the same thing. And we got chocolate all over our face, and we're like, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't need anything. No, I know it. I, I saw you sin. But this term to confess means to agree. And that's what David did. Instead of continually fighting to cover up the shame and the guilt, he said, no, I agree, God. I testify that you are right, that I am sinful that I have violated your moral law, that I've missed the mark, that I have guilt. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Meaning, you did not hold against me the guilt that I have for missing the mark. And boy, did he miss the mark. 
I mean, he was so far missed the mark that he wasn't even on the field anymore, right? But God didn't hold that against him anymore when he confessed. And God will do the same for you. When you, for, when you confess and you say, God, I've missed the mark. I'm messing up all over. I can't even come close to hitting the mark. God no longer holds that against you. He forgives you of the guilt of missing the mark. And then he says, therefore, because God is quick to forgive, because God will cover your ledger, because God, you're going to fall short and God will cover that for you, let everyone who is godly, let everyone who desires to live a life that is dedicated to God, offer prayer to you. And I like how the NET puts this. During a window of opportunity, that the phrasing at the time when you may be found, it, in the Hebrew, it, it brings more across this idea of like, when there is an opportunity to pray, to confess to God, the person who desires to be godly will do it. That's what they're trying, that's what David's getting at here. And when's the, uh, when's the opportunity, the window of opportunity? It's when you realize that you're guilty. It's when you realize that you're wrong, when you realize that you've sinned. Whether it's when you're confronted or way before any confrontation. If you desire to be godly, you'll offer a prayer of confession to God. And then he says, surely in the rush of great waters. These great waters represent the calamity of three and four. That, he, that his uh, soul was being sucked dry from this sin. That, that his bones were being crushed. Uh, the, that's what the calamities uh, represent. They will not reach him. So the calamity will not reach those who confess. When you confess, that weight is lifted off your shoulders. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So this is the result of confession, that God then becomes a hiding place, a, a place of security, a place of comfort. And though he will not, he's not, I should say, David's not delivered from the result or the consequences of his sin, he is delivered from the pain of the shame of not confessing. He is being delivered from the weight of holding your own shame and guilt. And then God actually breaks into this psalm. So Yahweh responds to David and he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. If, if God's going to instruct us, we should probably listen, right? I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule. Now, a horse and a mule are known for their strength, aren't they? Uh, the first church I ever worked at was like a cowboy church, and I don't know why I was there, uh, why God called me there. I am not a cowboy whatsoever, but I really loved getting to know all these cowboys. And there was this group of girls that uh, they loved riding, and they, they rode in like shows, and they always tried to get me on horses. And man, I, they would just laugh so much because I was afraid of horses. And I think my fear was founded because horses are big and they are strong and they have teeth. 
Uh, most people don't think about horses. They do have teeth. But, but eventually they taught me how to like rein that horse in and how to control that horse, right? So that horse is big and it's strong. And sometimes we think we're big enough and strong enough to take on the weight of our own sin. And he's saying, no, you're not big enough. You're not strong enough. You can't take on the weight of your own sin. These horses big, it's strong, but without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle. Essentially, they need attention. They need to be trained. They need to be directed. You have to be the one in control of the horse. Don't be like that. Don't take on the weight of the sin and the guilt yourself. But instead, pursue God and give it over to God. Every day, pursue God and let Him take on the weight of your sin and shame and guilt. And then he gives us the conclusion. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who who trusts in the Lord. So he contrasts the the wicked who is going to hold on to his sin and guilt, who is going to try to cover up his sin and guilt. Now notice, he's not saying that the wicked is the one who has sinned. It's so important for us to get this. It's The wicked isn't just the person who has sinned, because we've all sinned. It's the one who has sinned and is trying to cover up their sin. That's what the wicked does. They sin, they rebel against God, and they just try to continue to cover it up. But, the stead, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. So steadfast means sure and faithful. So this steadfast, the sure, the faithful love of God surrounds the one you trust. To trust God means to take him at his word. To believe that his word is true and it's right and that he lives up to his word. When he says he will forgive you, when he says he won't hold it against you, when he says that he will cover the cost where you fall short. Believe it. Quit trying to cover the cost yourself. Be glad. This, this command to be glad means to be full of joy. Be full of quiet delight, contentment, satisfaction in the Lord. That is where we find our joy. We can't find our joy outside of God. It has to be found in God and in God alone. Because if it is found outside of God, it will be circumstantial. It will all depend on your circumstances and your joy will come and it will go. And depending on what happens in your life, you may never feel joy. There are some people that go through life never once having a circumstance go their way. They're born into poverty and they die in poverty. But that person can feel just as much joy in their life as the person who is born in privilege if they find it in God. 
And then he goes on, not just to the feeling of joy, but to expressing that feeling of joy. Uh, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. When we recognize that we are sinners, that we recognize that we have fallen short, that we can't earn our own righteousness, when we recognize all of this, and we confess it, and we ask for forgiveness from God, and we realize that He covers that, that is our first step to joy. And then the next step is trusting Him in all circumstances. So when my first wife died, I'm in horrible grief, weeping day and night, and yet I can trust in God. And I don't even trust that he would make that situation right, right then. I, I didn't have this false idea that he was going to bring her back to life and that nothing bad would ever happen again. I trusted that he would comfort me and that in the end, he was going to be faithful to his word. That there is an eternal life waiting for us where we were going to live in perfect community with our Creator. And it is that that gives us joy. Not a perfect life here, but in a life to come. Dear Lord, we thank you that we can have joy. But there is something so much more on this earth than titillation. But there is something so much more than even fleeting feelings of happiness. But that there is a quiet delight, a, a deep satisfaction in our heart, knowing that you are God, you are our creator, you have forgiven us of our sin. We no longer have to bear our shame and our guilt. And we can trust in what you say. In your name we pray.